A Tiny Revolution features adults having adult conversations, which means that adult language is probably going to be present, just so you know. Hey there, you're listening to A Tiny Revolution, a podcast about ordinary people living revolutionary lives. My name is Kevin Garcia. Welcome to episode 62, a bonus episode for the week because I missed last week, so I'm trying to make up for that by, uh, you know, doing the right thing, giving the people what they want. Uh, My voice sounds super duper deep. That's because it's morning time here in Florida where I am. I'm actually uh, serving as a camp counselor and speaker at a, at a youth camp, which is really cool. We've had so many great conversations and interactions already, and I've got a couple more days to go on that. So if you could be praying for me that I keep my energy up, these kids are incredible, um, and they're, they're really receptive to the things that the staff is bringing to them. So I am just overjoyed to be here, and I'm also overjoyed to bring you this conversation today with my friend, Vicki Beeching, who just released her book yesterday. Um, it's called Undivided. It's amazing. She's going to talk all about that. But first, let me just give you a quick reminder. Um, Failed Missionary Podcast, if you haven't tuned into that yet, go to your Apple iTunes store, to Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts, and listen to Failed Missionary. Start at the very beginning. It's really, really good, insightful stuff. Some of it's really heavy and hard to hear, but I think overall there's a beautiful tone of joy and redemption that's going to come from that. I'm doing a series with Failed Missionary called uh, The Gay Commission, where we're talking about LGBTQ identities on the mission field, how that's impacted us and ways that we can be a lot better to our queer brothers and sisters and siblings. So, uh, that's uh, announcement number one. Announcement number two, you know, Wild Goose Festival, that little thing happening in July. If you haven't already, go to wildgoosefestival.org slash tickets and use offer code GOOSECAST18. That's like GOOSECAST, it's like a podcast, but GOOSECAST18. And you can get 25% off your registration and tickets. Okay, moving on to today's conversation with the incredible, the wonderful, the fantastic, the fashionable, the delightful Vicky Beeching. I'm out of adjectives right now because it's a little early, but there should be more. Vicky is a writer, broadcaster, speaker, and equality campaigner. Drawing on her theological studies at Oxford University, she's presented programs on British uh, radio and television, uh, on religion, LGBTQ equality, current affairs, among other things. Um, the Independent, which is the newspaper, placed Vicky as the fourth most influential LGBTQ person in UK on their annual rainbow list. Harper, her Harper Collins memoir, which was just published yesterday, which is June 12, 2018, um, has been endorsed by well-known British figures, uh, as well as many American ones like best-selling thought leaders Rob Bell and Rachel Held Evans. Her work campaigning for LGBTQ equality and for mental health awareness has led to various nominations, including the Stonewall's Hero of the Year, National Diversity Awards Inspirational Role Model, British LGBTQ Award Broadcaster of the Year. That's a mouthful. Um, she has won Christian New Media Award for her writing, European Diversity Award for her work in LGBTQ campaigning, and even the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, gave Vicky a Thomas Cranmer Award for her contributions to the church. And do you know how many times it took me to say Cranmer? A few times, because it's early and I have no voice left. Anyways, if you don't know Vicky's story, it's pretty incredible. We go over parts of that in this interview, as well as her new book, Undivided, which is available uh, in bookstores everywhere and on Amazon and on Kindle. 
go ahead and download it now. I read it. It's heartbreakingly beautiful and also incredibly hopeful. So I'm done talking. I'm going to let Vicky talk. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Grab yourself a cup of tea in honor of our dear friend from the other side of the pond, Vicky Beeching. Hello, Vicky. How are you doing? How are you feeling? I can't believe you're here. Well, I mean, I can we, we tweeted about it, so I actually can believe that you're on the line with me. It's just so fun to talk to you. Obviously, we are friends anyway, but it's uh, lovely yeah. to be lovely to be on the podcast. I always listen to it. I'm a big fan, so it's fun to Aww. get to be part of the uh, you know your podcast family. Yeah. Can I also can I tell about like when we met for the first time? Yes. I thought it was yes. Just- yes. So it was Kansas City Reformation Project. I think this is like the third national conference we had. And um, I went up to you to talk to you and you said, I recognize you by your hair. (laughs) (laughs) And by your style as well. You have great style. Oh my gosh. Stop it. Don't butter me up. I'm a vegan. (laughs) It was was fun to see you um, kind of in in person though, because we had followed each other on Twitter that's always an interesting moment isn't it when you meet someone in real life when you are sort of online friends and it was just really fun to find out that you were indeed the life and soul of the party as much as I (laughs) as much as I thought you would be (laughs) oh my gosh well I appreciate that I think my favorite thing about our interaction was just like you said I need to get like a quint I think you said like I need a quintessentially American meal because I'm not going to get back across the pond and then we went to Denny's. It is true. I was talking about this with Matthias on his podcast. Um, it's just funny that that like was my favorite choice. But there's just something about the American diner experience that we just can't get here. So obviously Kansas City has lots of really expensive restaurants and we could have gone somewhere nicer. But, but no, we were just yeah. like, let's get chicken and waffles uh-huh. at the Denny's. I'd middle never, of I'd the never even had chicken and waffles ever. I mean, my favorite kind of stuff is the, you know, American breakfast type stuff even like the stuff they serve at waffle house i like <laughs> but um yeah same. i remember someone ordered chicken and waffles was it you it was me and, and i'm uh, just like you have to and try I, t- this. I tried a bit i thought what a what a strange combination fried chicken and waffles i mean who made that up listen it was really really beautiful and smart people living in the south <laughs> but <laughs> It's one of those things where I'm just like, there's not a whole lot of great stuff. I mean, there is a lot of great stuff that comes out of the South. There's a lot of really shitty stuff that comes out of the South, too. But among those things, chicken and waffles is on the top for me. Yes, it's hilarious. That was one of Matthias Roberts' top memories of me as well. So I think (laughs) everybody who met me at that conference will never forget the fact that I wanted to go to Denny's. I feel like I can never live it down now. So next time I see you guys, I'm totally going to suggest that we go back to Denny's because it's just... 100%. I'm now known for that. It's just, oh my gosh, the Vicky Beeching Chicken and Waffles National Tour. You're just going <laughs> to like, forget the book, forget anything yeah. else you do with your I could just speak just... at Waffle Houses. What do you think? You know, I'm 100% for this. In the background, people are going to be saying, what is it? Do you want your, what is it? Do you want your hash brown scattered, scrambled, battered? Smothered and covered. Yes. They have all these amazing ways to order, don't they? See, we don't have any of that in London. We do good fish and chips, but um, we don't. That have, is true. We don't have chicken and waffles, and you can't get bacon with pancakes. That doesn't exist either. So what? Oh, that's upsetting. I know you. You Americans are, are totally rocking the weird combinations that actually taste good. <laughs> See, that's not even weird for me. That's just Tuesday. <laughs> um. So, uh, do you want to shitty chat about the book, or well, first of all, before I do that, I always ask people who come on the show. 
if someone doesn't know who you are, which is pretty unlikely in, uh, in your case, um, being your profile, um, but if you were to give a snapshot to somebody about who you are, what you've been doing, um, what, what, what would be like the, the cocktail party pitch for someone who doesn't know you? Interesting. It's like, so what do you do? Like, hi, Vicky, it's nice to meet you. Like, what do you do? What's your thing? Mm, if I'm summing it up, and I guess our Twitter bio is usually somewhere where we have to define ourselves briefly, isn't it, as well? So that's always a bit of a, a head scratcher for me. It's like, what do I put there exactly? At the moment, I would describe myself as um, a writer, broadcaster, and a LGBTQ equality campaigner. So everything I do, I have like a portfolio of work, a bit like you, um, you know, writing and speaking and just doing everything I can really to campaign for LGBTQ equality, mostly in the church, but also now I do some work in corporate, uh, like mainstream workplaces as well to kind of Mm. do similar stuff for diversity there. So I think that's how I would sum it up. (laughs) Basically, I'm a person who wants to make the world a better place. That's lovely. And yeah, I think you're doing a fantastic job doing it. And this coming Tuesday, um, June the 12th, mm-hmm. is that correct? Mm-hmm. June 12th, your book, Undivided, is coming out in the UK and US at the same time? Um, so it launches in the US, Canada, and I can't remember exactly which country is on the 12th. And then the UK and um, Commonwealth countries on the 14th. So yeah, but I'm really seeing the 12th as the main launch day because I just figured I'd pick one. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I know I'm super excited. I mean, like I, I got to read the book ahead of time. I loved it. It is, it was such a beautiful, I mean, sto- I mean, like it's a beautiful story because like, I know your story and like getting, you get so personal and intimate from the very get go. And I think that's what struck me about it in the get go. So, um, but I also know that this was an incredibly tough project for you, um, with, uh, your, your, with your, um, chronic conditions. And, um, I can't remember as chronic fatigue syndrome. Is that correct? Yeah. That's one of the things. Yeah. Um, so I know that this project was an incredibly tough for you to finish. Um, so can like if I may, like what was the writing process like over the past few years of trying to get this thing out and at the same time uh, dealing with your health issues? Yeah, it was really hard. I signed the contract with um, HarperCollins right before I got diagnosed with these um, chronic illnesses. And I just thought I was going to write the book quite quickly. Um, at that point, I'd just come out. So it was really going to be a book about my journey up until that point um, of making the decision to come out. But it ended up taking me um, three years to write the book, which as a writer is quite embarrassing to me because I usually Mm. can turn stuff around relatively quickly. But yeah, I got diagnosed with um, fibromyalgia, which is a kind of constant chronic muscle pain um, and muscle weakness and something called ME which stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis, quite a mouthful. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, shortened sometimes to ME, ME-CFS, um, and some people call it chronic fatigue syndrome. So that's basically chronic fatigue. Um, so all of those have really slowed me down. They've had a massive impact on my life. The reason I haven't been back to the US since I met you, which I think was 2015, I believe. Um, yeah, that was like shortly after I had come out. Yeah. Um, so I haven't been back to the US since then. And I had done a ton of speaking like that same year. I 
did a keynote at one of Rob Bell's conferences in California. And then I came and did a keynote at the Reformation Project where I met you in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, since then, I haven't come back to the US because of these chronic health conditions because they um, they just make jet lag so difficult for my body to handle. Um, but yeah, basically, they were why the writing process slowed down. But then in a, another whole different kind of way, the book was harder than I thought because I had to revisit so many painful memories. And you've you've read the book, so... Mm-hmm. you know about the kind of really dark parts in the book and it just kind of really knocked me out emotionally to have to relive those I've tried to tell the story in quite a um sensory way like really painting a picture of the different scenes and and really trying to take the reader there as they read the words you know to really be able to imagine it and to go back in that much detail myself to those moments um it slowed me down as well because I was I was having to have a lot of therapy um, right. to, to be able to actually remember the things, to be able to write the book. And then I was also in and out of hospital with different tests for all these uh, conditions. So, so yeah, that's why it took me so long. So basically this was, you know, they say that they say having a baby is hard. Let's be honest, people. <laughs> I wouldn't know because I've never had one. Um, yeah. But it, it, I mean, certainly, have- it felt like birthing something. It really did. It felt like... Um, at times I just thought I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to be able to finish it. Um, and editing was just as hard as writing, I think, because you have to go over the same section so many times that um, you're kind of dealing with really painful, you know, chapters about, uh, well, you know, you'll see it when you read it, I guess, um, those who are listening. But, yeah, it was just different, really difficult situations I found myself in, having to go over them again and again and again and again, you know, trying to improve the wording and, uh, f- you know, fix any grammar issues. And I just mm-hmm. felt kind of stuck in those moments. And it was only my therapist that could really help me kind of pull myself out of them. So when I finally held the book in my hands, there was this huge sense of closure because I didn't feel like I had to live in those memories anymore and I could actually kind of close the yeah. door on it and move forwards yeah i i relate to that um fun fact i wrote my first book when i was like 23 years old before i'd come out and i'm just like it was like the shittiest thing i'd ever written in my life to be <laughs> honest it's living somewhere on the recesses of my hard drive it's never gonna see the light of day i was gonna um, say will we ever see this or no no we won't <laughs> not this version of it there's like a uh, a different iteration i am working on i have a book proposal out to a couple different agents right now so nice. god alone in the creek don't rise i, I would and be I have, uh, if, i'd be amazed if you don't you know have a book published in in the next year or so you <sighs> we need to hear your words on a you know the whole world needs to hear your <sighs> words god. Well, that is very kind, and I receive I receive that blessing as someone from someone who is uh, in that world right now. What is it? Uh, this is like some like Pentecostalish thing we used to say. It's like I got to get their blessing. I got to get with that <laughs> God over there. They just got to lay hands on me. <laughs> that takes me back. That takes me back to my yeah, yeah probably in the worst way. <laughs> Same. So that's some. Um, uh, if I could touch on a couple different things, like I. Uh, I've, I've read in the book that I particularly just resonated with. Um, I think what's like uh, incredible and also like can be very uh, emotionally charging for so many people is talking about the the issue of mental health, um, mental health and queerness and, and faith at the same time. Because like from the very get go, you let folks know like how your mental health was affecting you as someone who is like 
super duper closeted and a, a highly public figure within American Christian work. Like, like what, like the process of like being so vulnerable with talking about mental health and suicidal ideation, like how, like how did, how did you get there? Because I am, I still struggle to talk about it sometimes myself. Mm. Um, yeah, I think mental health has just slowly over the past few years become a really important part of the work I do now. So wherever I go to speak or, uh, you know, consult or the different things I do, whether it's in the church or in the corporate world, mental health always is on people's um, agenda. Like people are beginning to realize just how important it is to talk about it. And so, yeah, I just felt like with the book, I had to be really honest about that as well. That You know, it's not just a theological issue about being gay and yeah. Christian, you know, but it's actually, um, as one of your slogans says, I think on one of the t-shirts you sell, bad theology kills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, and Thanks it does. for that plug. <laughs> but I think people don't really realize that theology has an impact beyond just academic debates. Um, it's it's actually killing people. And I think suicide yeah. is probably one of the main ways. Like in the, in the dedication of my book, I dedicate the book to um, LGBTQ young people, um, especially who have taken their life mm-hmm. because they couldn't face being gay and Christian. And um, I just think that the reason I have such passion for it is because my own mental health has just been so damaged. Um, Mm -hmm. When I was still in the closet, you know, it it totally drove me to the point of feeling feeling suicidal. And I write about that in the book. And in the very first chapter. Yeah, well, I just wanted to to, to sort of bring people in to a part in the story where um, they could just see how bad things had got. And the funny thing for me, well, not funny, but kind of ironic is that since coming out, I've actually been diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And I kind of imagined it happening differently. Like in my head, I thought, okay, so you come out and then everything's better and rainbows appear <laughs> out of the sky, unicorns start prancing, you know, in glitter the glitter everywhere. Exactly. And then you get, flags, you get into a parades. car like, and you drive off into the sunset and everything's amazing. And yeah. for me, it was not that. For me, it was only the beginning of just starting to pick up the pieces of the damage that had been done. So really the the majority of the therapy I've had to fix me, you know, in terms of putting me back together, in terms of my mental health and some of my physical health happened after I came out and it was coming out was like the bombshell. And then I was looking around going, wow, like my life has always had this damage. I just didn't realize. Um, mm, so, yeah. you know, the depression, the anxiety, the suicidal ideation, all the stuff I'd struggled with in the closet. Suddenly now I was sort of living, um, what felt like a much more authentic life after coming out. And I could be honest with that about, be honest about that with my therapist. So I actually started taking antidepressants after I came out and got my diagnosis of those things after I came out, which, um, yeah, it was hard to take on board. It was not, not the story I thought I was going to tell. And that's actually, I'm quite glad in some ways that the book took such a long time to write because now the book is actually significantly about after coming out as well. And I don't think we talk enough as, the LGBT community about what actually happens after you come out and maybe the slightly mm-hmm. more challenging parts of it, like the way you can have to grieve for your former lost yeah. years, you know, or the, just the grief and pain of dealing with the fallout and things like mental health. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I resonate obviously because like the same thing ish happened to me, like around like coming out, being in missionary world, being disinvited from all the things that I lost, like not having any respect from this community that I once was like very respected by Mm. all because I believe differently about this one itty bitty thing, which I think like, 
you know, in some ways is not itty bitty, but in many ways, like when I think about the conversation around sexuality and the gospel, I'm like, this is literally like the, like, this is such small potatoes to me. And I really wish everybody else would get over it so we can just continue to do the work of the church. But what do I know? I'm just somebody who's living the experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the part about picking up the pieces is so true. I feel like there's, um, I, I do not regret coming up for one minute. Um, I don't regret how I came out or when I came out because I was on my own path, just like all queer people are on their own path that they're coming out stories. But there is this reality that we have to kind of face up, especially as LGBT people of faith, especially if you live in more conservative context that um, you're shedding a lot of things that are going to be familiar and things that you love and things that uh, bring you peace in some ways. Like for some people it's family, for some people it's careers, for some people it's, your faith community because they are unable to handle um, the truth that you're presenting to them or unable to like integrate it in with their, um, their way of being. And it's so tough. It is a huge loss, isn't it? A huge loss. Um, I think the evangelical church culture is so different to really any other church culture around the world and Mm. the warmth and the friendliness and the fact that it's not just going to church once on a Sunday. It's usually, you know, being part of some kind of, um, I don't know, helping out in some way, there's such a, an impetus, isn't there, on getting involved in serving. So for most people, they're kind of on some kind of roster to do something, you know, whether it's putting out the chairs or singing in the band, being part of a home group in the week, prayer meetings during the week. I mean, it, it for many evangelicals, and I put myself in this camp, it became my whole life. Socially, yeah. you know, socially, it became my whole life as well as spiritually. So it's a huge loss when you get shut out of that community because you can go to more like liberal churches, but often they tend to be more formal and less social. Um, I know that's a little mm. bit of a generalization, but I think it is actually a fair one that even, yeah, I mean, you know, terrible. that kind of warm evangelical social culture is, it becomes life to most of us and you lose that and you suddenly feel totally like locked out of your former world. Yeah. It's not just about leaving a, uh, a closed off or conservative spiritual community. It's like, that is your social community. That's your family community. And I think at least in my experience, like when I like say that I meet like a, a non-religious uh, queer friend and like, I'm explaining my work and like the world that I came from, I don't think they understand the gravity of like the loss that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. They think, think, oh, go to another church, but it's not like that. Is it? It's um, these are people we've both known our entire lives often like since childhood Oh my God. Yeah. It's basically like losing your extended family. That's the best way I can describe it. Yeah. It's, 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 a, and then, and on, on top of that, because it is your whole social circle, it's your social identity. And so when you lose your people, um, you almost have like this question of like, I don't know who I am anymore because like you said, my entire life has been church on Sunday, twice a day is Wednesday night, potluck dinners, prayer meetings on Thursdays, you know, <laughs> uh, volunteering in the community on Saturdays. Cause like, this is what we do. This is what our people mm. does. Mm. Yeah. Lose that. It's like, yeah. And the loss of respect is, is just devastating, isn't it? That people that used to look up to you as someone who was respected in the community, who had some kind of leadership role, you know, with both you or I, whether it's singing or preaching or something mm-hmm. to go from that to then actually being looked at as though you um, are just a disgusting sinner which is kind of the mm-hmm. way that people have looked at me. And it's, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? It feels like such a fall from um, just a former sense of being loved 
to then sort of all this disdain and the respect is gone. It's, it's, it's really mm. hard to get your head around psychologically, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that word, especially you just used the word disgust, like it's not, um, that's not hyperbole either. That's no. not like, we're not exaggerating when we say like, <laughs> I remember, I remember like, uh, like one of the pastors from my old church, um, in Virginia, right before I come out had written these blog posts about what he thought about LGBTQ identity. And he had known like my whole story. He'd known that I had struggled with same sex attraction, quote unquote, my entire journey. And he wrote in this blog post that even, uh, even just being attracted to someone of the same sex was, was sinful. And I'm like, that goes so much further beyond like what even like certain side B theologies or, or, or like celibate gay Christians would say, I'm like, that is yes. yeah, totally not cool. And totally like um, shows this kind of level of, like you said, disgust yeah. for just people's humanity. And it's like, I, yeah, on I'm the sure one it, hand, yeah. you've probably had lots of people say similar to you that um, like really right wing Christians saying that same sex relationships are comparable to pedophilia and bestiality. I mean, they're the genuinely the kind of messages people like us get, aren't they? I mean, that's not unusual. Not unusual at all. And like from pulpits, not just like the trolls on Twitter or on Mm -hmm. Facebook, but like from preachers on pulpits who like will compare it to, um, will compare sexual, like a queer sexual identity to uh, alcoholism or porn addiction, et cetera, et cetera. But the ones that like really like piss me off are like pedophilia and and BCL. I'm just like, I have never not wanted ever to have sex with an aminal. Thank you. Mm. Um, that's not really my cup of tea. It's just shocking, isn't it? Really shocking. Um, especially also because, shows, yeah, it just blows my mind. It shows like you have no relationship with a queer person. You have no idea like what it is to walk as an LGBTQ person, do you? Yeah, that that was actually one of the main impetuses for me writing this book. I thought actually the more of us who really tell our story in detail, um, people that were formerly completely inside evangelical worlds hopefully they'll understand a bit more, you know, cause, um, cause they knew my songs, you know, they sang them every Sunday all around the world. I mean, I'm just so blown away that that ever happened. It's amazing. But at the same time, um, it's just shocking, isn't it? When people love you and celebrate your work, but then you tell them this one thing about them yourself and it changes everything. Um, mm-hmm. I just hope reading my book and reading just what it was like day in, day out as a worship leader, as a touring musician, at all of their conferences and events, you know, holding this secret and how, yeah, how it just destroyed me physically and mentally. Yeah. And I think that's something like uh, to touch on one of the themes in your book is how that repression of your identity caused, uh, was probably the cause of a lot of your mental and, and physical um, ailments. Um, like the, the one, and I think you've told us at keynotes before how you developed that, um, the autoimmune disorder that was mm. turning your skin into scar tissue. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was, it was really interesting because I was getting through my late twenties and still in the closet and still in America leading worship at mega churches. And I thought I could outrun the struggles I was having. You know, I knew that the toll was really um, heavy on my mental health, but that's kind of something for the most part that some of us can keep hidden, you know, Um, And it was only when I started to develop physical symptoms that I couldn't really outrun it anymore. And I got diagnosed with an autoimmune disease called scleroderma. And yeah, you're totally right. It's where the skin cells of the body start to turn into scar tissue. And my doctor um, who diagnosed me in California said it's um, 
It's the kind of disease where your body is literally fighting against itself. And I just couldn't really avoid the irony of that in terms of what I was dealing with on the inside, you know, that I was right. at war with myself, you know, the part of me that was gay and the part of me that was Christian and thought I shouldn't be gay. Um, yeah, so I actually got um, second and third opinions and ended up needing um, a form of chemotherapy to treat it. And when I was going through that, mm. that treatment, um, one of the doctors that was treating me just said, um, really frequently, these autoimmune conditions are linked to stress and trauma. You know, you can have autoimmune stuff lying dormant in your body your whole life and it might never come um, and sort of cause you any trouble. But they just said stress and trauma over prolonged periods um, can really yeah. tr trigger these things. So my specialists were literally saying to me, if there's anything you can think of that you're not dealing with or some big trauma or stress in your life that you can somehow fix, please deal with it because we think that's what has caused scleroderma to flare up <clears throat> in the first place um, and require you to be on these chemo drugs. So that was actually um, the point where I came out. I decided to come out. I just said to myself, well, I kind of came out to myself, I suppose, at that moment said, okay, I have to accept the fact that I am gay and then I will come out publicly um, as soon as my health, you know, is stronger and I feel ready to face the public. Um, but yeah, it was that physical illness that was finally the turning point for me in realizing just how much damage all that conservative teaching of shame had laid on me and the damage of living in the closet. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Also, like, like here in your public talks and in your book, like that's just, I think that's like, it's, it's very interesting for me to realize like how much, uh, how much our spirit, our mind and our body are so, so much the same thing, so integrated with one another. And I think our entire lives, we've been taught that like the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is the problem. Your body is the thing that is uh, causing you to sin. And that if we just get spiritual enough, like these things will go away and that our desires for, you know, for like you and me, for like intimacy and, and love and companionship, when we're taught that those things are immoral, um, that are in direct rebellion to God, it's like, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's no wonder that our bodies start rebelling because like, like <laughs> yeah. you, like I, um, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety, um, officially, um, as of like four months ago and I started, um, antidepressants myself mm. and, um, it's, and then I have also, I have friends of mine who have like heart conditions, um, from their, from their trauma and repression. I have a friend of mine who, I don't know what this is about, let's just like queer men in general, but just like, there's so many folks who have like such like bad relationships with food and their body and, um, develop, uh, uh, disordered eating habits from it. Um, all because we are not allowed to affirm this part of ourselves that God has called good. And that's also something like what I also love about your book too, is like, it's deeply theological. It's like, not just like anecdotal, um, which I think is lovely and wonderful. And I personally think like those stories can stand on the, their own, but you go into your process of like deconstructing your own theology around queer identity and same sex relationships, um, as part of your process, um, which I think you talk about towards the end of like part four. Good memory. Four. <laughs> yeah, I have. You I have the, the, the memorized. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like I want to be an expert on this like is, people. This is impressive. Well, it's on, it's on page 174, halfway down. Right. <laughs> just kidding. It's actually 176, halfway down. <laughs> 
But yeah, you, I think, talk- yeah, the theology was so important to me. And that's um, one of the main things that was thrown at me when I came out that clearly if I could endorse being gay uh, myself and believe in same-sex relationships, I had thrown my love of the Bible out the window, that I had mm-hmm. given up on solid theology. Um, and so the book does talk about when I um, first as an undergraduate went to Oxford University to read theology. And um, I did hear a few views thrown around about people that believed that you could be gay and Christian. And I was so uh, just drenched in my conservative evangelical world that I just couldn't even give them any room. But I do talk in the book about sneaking over to the um, sexuality shelf in one of the Oxford libraries and just reading um, reading some of these liberal books, which was um, at the time felt very... Uh, kind of i don't know mischievous to me and <laughs> painful you know that i was almost cheating on god by reading what i saw as these really uh, liberal books um but yeah then when i did you're not reading anything but the bible <laughs> on god exactly um yeah and then later on in the book like you say i i kind of when i when i get that scleroderma illness and i decide i have to figure out this this situation once and for all i i spent time praying and taking theology books into different churches in London and just sitting in those churches when they were empty and using the time to pray and read and study. And I document a little bit of that. I didn't, I don't go into the kind of really uh, detailed theology. I think if people want to know about that, they can easily uh, pick up other books and read them like Matthew Vine's book, God and the Gay Christian, I think is an excellent resource mm-hmm. for people it's the one i always recommend if if people want to kind of get more into what every single passage in the bible says and then just follow his footnotes um in the back of the book if you want to go into you know some of the original sources so for me it was like there's enough theology in my book to make sense of the narrative arc of my mind change but i also didn't want to make it kind of a theology textbook cuz i you know i'm hoping a lot of people outside of the church will be interested in in just the story itself of my journey so I tried to get the right balance between having a bit of theology in there, but not too much. Yeah, I thought it was a perfect balance. You also tell like my favorite story, which is I, me and me and Amelia call it um, uh, gay, gay Cornelius. <laughs> yes. Like we don't know if, if Cornelius was gay or not, but it's it's that idea that just like the Holy Spirit is showing up where the Holy Spirit shouldn't be showing up according to what we think the Holy (laughs) Spirit should be doing. And it's just like, that's the thing. Like one of the big things that convinced me is that like God's always been showing up in in the most unlikely people, or at least what we think is the most unlikely person. But maybe uh, if we open up our ideas of like where God actually could be, it changes everything. And that's honestly like, that's what, um, I remember worshiping at Reformation Project for the first time. That is when I was convinced. It wasn't like Matthew's book. It wasn't um, a really good story. It was like feeling for me, it was a feeling of the Holy Spirit, like in the moment among queer people and like being prayed for by other queer people with like other queer people. Wow. Like that yeah, was the thing that see what me. See what God's doing. It's um, I love that bit in the book of Acts where the apostles just say, look at, you know, look at what God's doing here. These people are showing, you know, that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're living out the fruits of the Spirit. Who are we to deny what God is doing? And I I think that's a really interesting point that it's not just about understanding different words in the Greek or Hebrew in the Bible, but actually looking around and seeing where God appears to be at work. And like you say, God 
appears to be a heck of a lot more inclusive <laughs> than many of our <laughs> churches. So um, I think often often there are surprises, like back in the Book of Acts, you know, the fact that the Gentiles were included in the kingdom of God. And that's kind of what I talk about as a big moment of mind change for me um, in my story, uh, that I realized that actually in the same way that the Gentiles were included, God is always expanding and inviting and opening the door wider and wanting everyone to come to the table. Um, so it's, I think the church has just had to change its mind on so many issues, hasn't it, throughout history, like when the church um, mm. opposed the abolition of slavery and opposed the work of someone like William Wilberforce and said that slavery was endorsed by the Bible. And I did a lot of research into that during the writing of my book. And I was amazed at just how strongly the church, uh, many parts of the church did hang on to that, that the Bible defended slavery because, you know, people like Paul wrote about slaves honoring their masters, even if they were badly treated. Um, and then obviously, you know, years later, the, the issue of women's right to vote, the suffragettes and how mm -hmm. so many Christians hung on to the parts of the Bible where, you know, again, good old St. Paul um, talking about women staying silent at church and not having <laughs> authority over a man. And it's oh, just taking, Paul. you know, good old St. Paul. I, I'm going to have a long conversation with him one day in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> like, what were you thinking? Although, according to many people, you and I won't be in heaven because we are absolutely going to hell. But so. You know, but if we if there's any chance we can just sneak into heaven and I can yeah, get hold of some Paul, just for like five minutes, <laughs> be like, I want to come in for five minutes and I need to see some Paul. That's all. <laughs> just like it's like, hey, I know that you're busy, like with, but like you've got like all eternity, right? Like, just can we like, grab five minutes? <laughs> what did you actually mean? <laughs> what I think is so interesting too is like I've talked with a few of my friends who are like like uh, like pastors and whatnot about like their relationship with Paul in general. And it's like, it feels like a mild heresy, but also being a gay Christian is mild heresy. <laughs> so, you know, what's, what's, what's good. Um, but the thing that um, I think they're so interested, like they say, just like, cause like I wonder, they say like, I wonder if Paul actually thought his writings were going to end up canonized, you know, like did Paul, like was Paul just like writing to individuals and maybe was like a little bit harsher with them or more intense with them because of his relationship with them. And he did so without thinking that this was going to be like a text that became the text for all time. Um, yeah, and, he and also saw himself as a guy, didn't he? I mean, obviously he was, you know, kind of you know, an apostolic role, but I imagine he was also probably quite humble. So he seems yeah. like a, you know, reasonably humble bloke. So yeah, I mean, he probably just thought he was writing letters to churches and uh, that, mm. that in itself is interesting, isn't it? Like how the Bible came to be put together and looking through church mm. history. And although most Christians would believe that the Holy Spirit was at work in which books made it into the canon. Obviously, those decisions were still only made by humans, mostly men, it's worth saying, in those church mm -hmm, councils. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Entirely men, I would imagine. Um, and they, I think we have to acknowledge the fact there can be some human error, like even some of the, the ways that the um, texts were copied down. You know, some things, there are discrepancies if you look at them academically, aren't there? So, it's mm -hmm. a tricky one, but I, but I do think often conservative Christians seem to elevate the words of Paul almost above the words of Jesus sometimes. Um, and that's not a controversial thing to say because tons of academics say that. But it's um, it's just interesting to hear the weight given to Paul's words on some of these things when they're things that Jesus never, ever mentioned. Yeah. And I think that's something I keep in mind is just like my allegiance is not to the Bible and my allegiance is not even to the church. My allegiance is to Jesus and that is who I follow. And that is who I'm willing to be wrong for. Mm, you know, yeah, yeah. Like that is, 
that should be my end to all be alls. Like I know that Jesus, like for so, for so many of us, like has been uh, a, a figure who has been weaponized and, and misrepresented. Um, but like when I look at the Jesus of the gospels who um, I was actually just, um, I was talking about this in a video that I posted the other day um, about how when Jesus met the woman at the well, um, he's not like calling her out or telling her that she is like this huge sinner or whatever. He's just saying, just like, Hey, like, I know who you are. Like you've had five husbands, you've struggled in X, Y, and Z ways. And I can give you living water that way you'll never be thirsty again. And after that, when she she's like, this man told me everything about my life. This man like told me who I was. And so I think like the, like the parallel for us in many ways, it's like Jesus is not asking us to be anybody, but who we are. Jesus is asking us to be our complete selves. And that is what is going to bring our gospel message to the world. That is the thing that's going to resonate with people. Yeah. I think people almost imagine that we can hide secrets from God. People have said that to me a lot about my Mm. former career as a worship leader that, um, you know, my songs and stuff um, meant a lot to them back then because God was clearly, you know, blessing my ministry and touching people through me as I sang and spoke. But it's almost as though they think God didn't know I was gay when he was giving me those songs. And (laughs) that's just ridiculous. You know, God knew that I was the same person I am now, just like you say about the Bible story about the woman at the well, like God sees our hearts and knows everything. So, um, it's yeah, I think the more authentic we can be, the more we actually represent who God made us into in the first place. Mm-hmm. I just think authenticity is actually quite a it's an act of worship, I think, authenticity, because we're being Oof. we're being ourselves. You know, we can't give God any more greater honor than to say, actually, the person you chose to make me is the person I'm gonna be fully, a hundred percent unashamed. And uh, people have said to me that they assume that my relationship with God is over when I came out, but I would say it's actually stronger because I feel more authentic, like I'm mirroring back the image of God in me more than I ever have. 100% agree. Like that is, that is what I always tell people. I'm just like, my relationship with God did not decrease or diminish when I came out. It increased so much more. Like I take my faith so much more seriously as a queer person than I ever did when I was like uh, a wannabe straight worship pastor. Um, Mm -hmm. And it yeah. was like, it's like I, when I remember like leading worship, like I remember like leading certain songs where I would just like kind of like be leading worship and be very emotional. But in my spirit, what I was thinking was just like, I'm not worthy to stand up here as a queer yeah. person because yeah. like I have this huge secret, um, this huge sin problem. But like on the flip side, on the other side of that, when I'm leading worship now, like I'm still emotional because that's who I am. But like, it's not because... I'm ashamed. It's because I understand how much I'm loved Mm. and yeah, it's huge. It is huge. I think people are really wrong to criticize LGBTQ Christians as, uh, you know, being disinterested in the Bible because most of us have had to put in so much study Mm -hmm. in order to come to the place where we actually feel confident that God can affirm us in coming out and being in relationships that I think many of us have had to do a lot more Bible study than the average Christian because you know we're we're wrestling with the text in a different way because our identity hangs on it basically. Yeah, not just our identity, but our relationship with God, um, like hangs on 
especially with, like when we're coming from tradition and we still want to honor scripture and still need to like have this connection to our faith because it's just, it's who we are and who we were created to be. Yeah. Um, I think most of us deserve like at least an honorary, like doctorate or honorary master's degree <laughs> from somewhere. Even if we just make one for each other and print it out. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'll take calligraphy and then I'll make a fake degree for you and for me. Yes. And if anybody out there gets that Reliant K reference, let me know in the comments because that was a deep cut into evangelical <laughs> pop music. Uh, yeah, um, this, but the great irony is that anyone, I think, that defends same-sex relationship, the first thing that's said is well, you clearly don't take the Bible seriously. And things like the Bible clearly says, like that is that is the quote that we all hate, isn't it? The Bible clearly says, and whenever I debate this kind of stuff, that's that just always pops up. I just wait for it, like bingo. It's like, there it is. The Bible clearly says that, you know, God says marriage is between a man and a woman. Um, and it's just, I guess, about us remaining patient and explaining Isn't, the fact. Ugh, <laughs> but it's hard to remain patient. Though. Patience is God. hard. It's like not my virtue at all. No. I think like that's the, like, the difference between folks like you and like, this is like, I talked like Reformation Project does this thing where we, we call it elevating the dialogue. And, um, you know, somebody from TRP staff, like will moderate the conversation. And I know that I'll never be able to moderate that conversation because I would just, I, I sit on the front row, like tweet live tweeting the whole thing. And I'm just fuming with anger from the mm-hmm. dumb things that are being said. Yes. Um, but it is, it is that, um, that bit of patience and like, we're like queer folks are always asked to be like the patient ones and the measured ones and the ones who like have to keep yeah. our composure, even though our characters are being like assassinated in real time. Yeah. My least favorite word is that we have to be gracious. Ugh. I think that can be such an abusive phrase, you know, that we need to remain gracious. And if you're standing opposite someone who's literally shouting basically abuse from the Bible at you, um, it's not necessarily the right thing to say to be gracious. And and to be totally honest, although I do try and be patient in these dialogues, I have to be honest, as the years are going by, you know, it's been four years now since I came out, I feel like my patience is honestly running out. And Girl, I have a lot yeah. less patience than I used to have because I, I see a lot of people with these um, super conservative views that are very offensive to LGBTQ people. And I'm not seeing much change happen with them. I don't think they will ever change their mind because they're so invested and embedded in that worldview um and i am getting to the point now where i just think actually god isn't always patient you know jesus wasn't always patient you know he he did get upset he did stand up for justice he did turn over tables and um i think yeah basically in a nutshell i think my patience is is wearing thin <laughs> no same because like in my like the way i feel like there are lives in the balance there are people like the, this t- this theology is killing people and I don't say that lightly, and I don't say that as someone who's trying to be sensational. I say that as somebody who has uh, survived two suicide attempts. Yeah. Like I, and, and like that, and I know people. People slide into my DMs all the time, saying, "I don't know if I can keep doing this. I don't know if I can go on." And the thing I have to remind them over and over again, and like when you've heard your entire life that you're called an abomination. To have someone else tell you that God loves you is almost like you, you're incapable of receiving that. Yeah. And like it is, especially in light of what's been happening in the headlines the past few days um, with people um, completing suicide, God rest their souls. Um, there is there is an uptick in urgency for me because at the end of the day, I am concerned with people staying alive. Yeah. And um, I'm not here to debate theology with you. I'm here to I'm here to get my people. 
I'm yeah. here to like usher them into the promised land. And, you know, you can either get on board or get out of my way. Yeah. That's th- my, um, my feel. Yeah. I think for people like us, for whom it is our very identity in our lives, it, it is very different from people that are straight, just debating this as a church issue. And one of the things that infuriates me most, um, especially in the church of England is that often that dialogue about what should we do about LGBTQ people nearly always happens among totally straight people, um, mm. you know, straight, cis, white men, typically, and they're making decisions about minorities and diversity, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> in kind of small groups locked away somewhere um, with lots of pieces of paper. And actually, the people that are really suffering are people like us, because it's our, our very lives that are at stake and our mental health and our well-being and our survival. It's not an academic issue. It's It's actually an issue of life and death for real people. Mm, say that again for the people <laughs> in the back. Listen, so I can't wait for our chicken and waffles tour. That's going to be everything. Um, yes, I did. Can I ask about a particular um, chapter? Um, well, it's actually, um, it's a, around the last part of your book. You are starting the coming out process. You're talking to your friend, Wendy, and you're um, sharing some lyrics with her from a song that you'd written. Um, called Undivided Heart. Is that where the title of the book came from? Yeah, it was. Um, I'm also a big fan of one word book titles. I just really like them for some reason. So I decided when I started writing the book, I'd love it to have a one word title. And yeah, that song has played such a role in my journey. I wrote a song for those who haven't heard it called Undivided Heart. And it was on my last album. And people wouldn't have known it at the time, but it was a prayer about being set free from being gay. And the lyrics say that I want an undivided heart so that I can love God with every part of who I am. Um, And that that brokenness had just like brought me to my knees and I felt so ashamed. And I think for anybody listening to it, they just thought it was a general song about sin, you know, because we all do do things that displease God. Uh, But it just took such a long time for me to reach the point where um, I realized that actually it's like a huge car alarm going off outside my apartment. <laughs> it's totally fine. Sir. For all this for all you fancy people out there who have studios that you can yeah. record your podcast in. This is real life. Yeah, this is what happens when you don't support your local podcast and creatives in your life. So <laughs> I'm gonna wait for it to finish if, if it does. Like hopefully someone will just like rush in and switch it off. I assume like in like England it's like Oh, oh there we it's go. Gone See, sold. Yeah, so the song Undivided Heart for me is um, its really a song that I've journeyed with. And whereas initially it was about being set free from being gay, now I see the song as a prayer to be undivided in... Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. These things don't happen on the BBC. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is BS. I'm calling the local studio and saying, can you please help us out next time? <laughs> I didn't even own a car, so I can't be responsible for this because it's definitely not mine. <laughs> well, if you want to power through, like, I I personally don't care. Do you edit your podcasts? <laughs> um, you know, mildly, sometimes I just drop stuff in there. I'm just like, boom, there it is. Because I try to, um, I won't, I will, I, sometimes I want to say this professional reasons, but also <laughs> I want to say that I'm kind of lazy sometimes yes. because it takes so long to like go through a podcast no, totally, and edit it. Totally. Okay. Well, good. Now the, the crazy London car alarm appears to have Knock on either got quiet or something. Um, but yeah, undivided hearts now means something quite different to me 
when I hear the lyrics, I think about being undivided in my faith and my sexuality. And actually now it's a prayer that I would be able to live those two out simultaneously, you know, being gay, being Christian, and that there is no division between them. Um, so it kind of felt like I'd come on a journey since writing the song. And when I thought about what I wanted to call the book, initially I was thinking undivided heart, but I really wanted it to be one one word. And I thought undivided really does sum up what has happened to me as a human being, you know, that this sense of war within me that began when I was about 13, when I realized I was, when I realized I was gay, you know, that sense of fighting against myself all my, all my life until the age of 35. Now I am finally undivided. And so felt like the right title. Yeah. It's a good book, Vic. It really is. Thank you. It was fun to have, um, I sent it out to a few people early just to get some opinions and obviously you were one of them and it just meant so much to hear that you you know that you think it's a book that will help people i mean the first thing i said was just like girl like the first chapter blew me away um mm-hmm. looks like from the get-go so if you're listening to this go out to your local barnes and noble uh wherever fine books are sold and pick up <laughs> undivided because yeah amazon will bring good. it to your door if you're uh, you know if you don't want to go to the bookstore <laughs> yeah that's totally acceptable too <laughs> if if people if people do read the book and um want to get in touch with me i'm really easy to find my website is vickybeaching.com and i have a contact page that comes to me so if people want to reach out and just share their story with me or if anyone wants any advice you know about finding um lgbtq friendly churches in that area or just getting networked um, i always love hearing from people i'm a huge fan of twitter that's just at vicky beaching instagram as well so you can find me in all those places and i i'm very accessible and always um, always excited to chat she really is like she really will get back to you that's the thing <laughs> thanks she's not like those I've other to reply like... to your text messages now if i'm late on them you'll be like ah! <laughs> said that everyone else could email you but you're not texting me back and this is just effed up no i really um you're great vic i i love you i'm thankful for you thank you for this book thank you for your story and thank you for your time oh, thanks for having me it's fantastic That was my conversation with my friend, Vicky Beeching. You can contact Vicky on the internet at uh, across social media at Vicky Beeching or on her website, VickyBeeching.com. This podcast is supported by 104 incredible people on Patreon. And if you don't know what Patreon is, you probably haven't listened to my show before. So let me give you a little primer. Patreon is a great way for listeners like you who are consuming free media by con- content creators like myself to help uh financially support it because lord knows this shit ain't free honey so if you've got an extra couple bucks per month if you are the kind of person who drinks iced coffee at least once a day if you are somebody who believes that conversations like this are important i would encourage you to become a supporting partner on patreon all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash the kevin garcia learn about the different perks the different prizes, the different things that we do as a community, including a Slack channel, which was often popping. Um, we also have uh, a, a free shirt once a quarter. We have Google Hangouts that I'm trying to get started because, you know, who doesn't like hanging out with each other? And not to mention, you get a newsletter and amazing things like that. So go to patreon.com slash Garcia, learn about that, become a supporting partner, and help us make more content like this possible. All right, I am done talking. My voice is shot. Please say some prayers for me because I've got like three more days to go with these kids and I am so tired. Um, so we are going to make it through together with the power of prayer and a lot of coffee, honey. So 
How about this? You guys go take your meds and go see your therapist and um, drink some water. Um, do some yoga. Sit around a campfire. Sing some songs that were important to you at a time gone by. Um, share a story about why you love Vicky Beeching's book so much. Um, shoot me a tweet. Follow me on social media at the Kevin Garcia. Follow me on the blog thekevingarcia.com. This has been another episode of A Tidy Revolution. My name is Kevin Garcia, and I'll talk to you later this week, honey. Or more like next week. Okay. <laughs> Bye.